All right, welcome to Civ Food Podcast 2. Again, I'm Rhett Berg. Uh, let's jump right into it. Hopefully, the audio quality here is not too bad. I spent a good amount of time trying to get the um, microphone to work with my Android phone. don't really have much of a setup right now. So, unfortunately, I'm just recording this on the phone. And we'll have to have potato quality audio. Oh, well. Um... So first I'd like to lay a little bit of groundwork from the last episode, um, kind of set some expectations. One of the things that I want to talk about is the time frame for Civ Boot. Um, this is not really something that can be done in a few years, probably 10 years, 20 years. Um, and part of the important thing on this, especially in this podcast, is the discussion of patents, technologies, things like that. If it takes a while, one of the nice things about patents is that they... Um, after it's patented, after a certain amount of time, it's released to the public domain. Um, so it's kind of a process for open sourcing hardware and processes, actually. Um, and in this time frame that a Civ boot is working in, this is fine. Um, some of the technologies I'm going to talk about uh, are old, so they've already been opened. Some of them are newer um, or, or haven't been developed yet. but. Um, if they are developed and they are patented, eventually they'd be open to the public domain. Um, so that's kind of the time frame of the Civ boot. Uh, it's unlikely that this is going to be built in less than 30 years, the first Civ boot. So it's a good thing to keep that in mind when talking about this. Um, also, another important thing is what are the minimum requirements of the Civ boot? Um, so it's, it has to be able to produce the foundations of civilization. That's computers, um, basic communication protocols, automation. That kind of thing, but for a level one Civ boot, uh, it doesn't have to really beat computers past 1980s or so. Um, they had operating systems, text processing, storage, um, communication, really basic rudimentary communication protocols. But you know, you could bring modern standards there to bear. Uh, it didn't, doesn't require excessive hardware to be able to do communication, really. Um, so. Even even a Z80, uh, which has 9,000 transistors, I mean, you compare that to modern CPUs, they have millions and millions of transistors. Um, you know, it could do 15 megahertz, and it could run a full operating system, and you could write code, compile code, compile for itself, etc. Um, and actually, in a later section, I'm going to talk about, uh, I've been really busy reading about these uh, these other efforts. Um, there's an operating system called Collapse OS, literally in five kilobytes uh, boots an entire operating system and can run a, a fourth compiler um, with a text editor, you know, everything. Um, and it can cross-compile for other systems. So, like, you don't need a huge amount of hardware, uh, a highly complex chip fabrication process in order to be able to fulfill the minimum requirements for a boot. Um, that's one of the expectations I want to set here. But... This episode is going to be mostly about silicon purification processes. Not the chip manufacturing, but those depend on pure silicon. And this is one of the major issues with a sieve boot. Um, achieving pure silicon, or maybe not pure silicon, maybe another uh, medium we'll get to there, um, is one of the difficulties. So... 
why is pure silicon needed? A little bit of background, a little bit of uh, physics, electrical engineering. Um, I have a degree in electrical engineering and I took a little bit, a few courses on this. I don't have a master's or anything. I'm not an expert. But um, so why is pure silicon needed? It's because of the physics of developing a transistor. It depends on very specific voltage drops, uh, reductions. It depends on a pure crystal silicon with a specific amount of dopant, so a specific amount, and these are like parts per million, parts per billion of specific atoms in order to change how, change the electrical characteristics of the silicon across certain boundaries, and that's how a transistor is made. That's a really rudimentary understanding, um, but a pure silicon crystal, single crystal silicon, is essential for most modern computer chips. Um, we'll get to some alternatives uh, in a second here. Um, and a little bit about the cost, the history of the cost. Silicon fabrication has been skyrocketing over the years. Uh, in 1970, the, build, the cost of building a plant was about $3 million. So that's kind of like the Z80 computer chips. I think that was a little later, 1975 or something. Um, by 1980, it had reached $75 million. So that's 20 times or more. And it had continued rising. Oh, a lot of this stuff will be in the show notes, by the way. Uh, in the 1980s, it had continued rising. And by 85, it had uh, risen to about $150 million. And it's now at standing about $20, $30 billion to build a new silicon fabrication plant. Um, so what I thought when I was first researching this was that we needed like half a gig of RAM. We wanted like a half a gig processor speed, things like that. But on researching um, Collapse OS, things like that, you could actually get quite a ways with a very minimal operating system. Um, I think more is always better. Um, being able to develop more sophisticated tools, visual tools, things like that are gonna require larger RAM, larger processor speed. Um, but uh, we'll get more into the software, how the software can be simplified, I think, um, using things like um, instead of using graphical GUI systems, using, um, for instance, to do CAD, computer-aided design, like creating a chair or something, um, you could use a programmatic method uh, to define how the chair is made instead of um, having a, have a full visual suite that requires high processing speed. So we'll get into some of those uh, alternative design choices, which can help simplify the Civboot software and uh, require less hardware. Um, so we'll get into the, some of that later. Um, but those are some of the ideas to keep in mind. Um, so this is too expensive. Uh, $3 million, I mean, that's really expensive, but maybe it's achievable. Um, you could you could have like a university scale sieve boot that has a, a $3 million silicon fabrication plant. And maybe, maybe it's possible with new technology and new processes, um, we could make it even cheaper. Um, but it's important before thinking like maybe we could do it to understand a little bit about how silicon is purified. Um, so purifying silicon is done uh, by melting sand, first of all. Just sand is mostly silicon. Uh, silicon is the second most abundant element on Earth. Oxygen is the most abundant. Um, so you melt sand in a what's called a submerged arc furnace. I'm no expert on this either, but uh, it's basically, I think, some rods and ultra high current 
uh, push through uh, the sand and it melts the silicon. Um, the arc furnace, I, from what I researched, is typically manufactured via steel and refractory metals. Like that's the, the basin that contains the melted silicon. I saw some other uh, references that, uh, that it can actually be made of quartz. Uh, I think quartz, quartz is a purified form of silicon. Uh, it's just SiO2, uh, silicon and oxygen uh, bonded. And it has a higher melting point than I think typical sand. So you, you can kind of see how that might work. Um, but it requires extremely high electric power and it ends in what's called MGSI, a metallurgical grade silicon, like, you know, uh, the, the grade of like iron or, or tin. They're not pure uh, metals uh, when they come out. They're metallurgical grade. They, they have a, a few impurities and that's okay for the development of most metals. But for the development of computers, that's not okay. Um, there's another method that's newer um, where some researchers have managed to powderize the silicon. Um, and we'll get into that as well. But that, that uh, medical grade silicon is then powderized into smaller, like I think micrometer sized granules and put through several chemical reactions uh, at mostly low temperatures in order to produce polysilicon, which is pure silicon to the parts per billion kind of ratio. And that takes several chemical steps, but it's mostly, it seems like fairly chem fairly standard chemical processes where you dissolve the silicon into acids that produces some kind of chemical. Um, the impurities form a different chemical and then you use uh, distillation. So like the, the the chemicals at certain temperatures form gases and you, you pull those gases off in order to distill down to the pure silicon elements and then use other chemical processes to extract the silicon. That's the basics of how pure silicon is made. But pure silicon is not the end of the story. Computer chips don't just require pure silicon. They require a pure silicon crystal, single crystal. Uh, the way to imagine this is Imagine that the silicon uh, is an atom and it's bonded to another atom and another atom and another atom and another atom. It's kind of like a lattice, like a box. It's like a perfect box. And that's the atom level. So there's, you know, billions of atoms in your finger. Um, every single bond is another perfect box that matches perfectly with that box. That's like, that, that is a perfect crystal. And a computer chip requires a perfect crystal with very, very few defects. Um, and defects can be introduced in all sorts of ways in the process, such as growing the crystal the wrong way with the wrong temperatures, having impurities, um, things like that. They cause the lattice, two lattices to be different, and that changes the electrical processes, uh, the electrical properties, excuse me, of the wafer which means that your computer chip doesn't work <laughs> if you have too many impure, if, if you have, uh, if you have um, defects in the wrong places. Um, so how do you grow a pure crystal? There are two types of what I saw that are mainly used in industry currently. That's called the floating zone and the Zokralski, uh, named FZ and CZ. Um, FZ is primarily used for creating ultra, ultra pure silicon. 
um, but it's only 5% of the silicon that's produced in industry. Um, it has some issues with wafer processing because the wafer is a little weaker to temperature changes. Um, the CZ method actually introduces impurities or something and it ends up making an, a stronger, the impurities introduced are somehow make the crystal stronger. I haven't 100% I haven't under, understood why. Um, so a little bit about these two processes though. Um, the CZ method that, I'm gonna butcher this name, Zokrowski method, uh, silicon's melted in a quartz crucible. So quartz, again, has a higher melting temperature than the silicon, so it doesn't melt, um, even though it's made out of silicon dioxide. Um, but this is pure silicon, so only silicon, no oxygen in the pure the polysilicon. So it's melted in a quartz crucible. Um, this is in like a, a, a like an argon or pure nitrogen gas or something like that. And it's slowly pulled, a, 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 a pure crystal is lowered into it. So a single crystal, uh, a tiny single crystal is lowered into it and slowly pulled up. And the pulling speed, it's also rotated and the pulling speed and rotation, um, as it's pulled up, the silicon solidifies and hardens and forms a pure crystal. It, it, it matches the crystal that was put in. And the pulling speed and the rotation, there's all sorts of uh, magic, quote unquote. Like nobody, they don't know why the specific pulling speed is necessary, um, um, but that's how they make, it slowly pulls up a, um, a cylinder of pure silicon. And it has to be adjusted because the temperature in the vat is changing constantly because you're removing silicon from it. Um, there's temperature differentials all over the place. It's very um, complicated and very expensive. And then at the end of the process in the CZ method, there's some silicon left over in the crucible, this pure quartz crucible, which is quite expensive. Um, and the silicon hardens and it actually cracks the crucible. <laughs> so, so it's a one-time process for each crucible, which is quite a significant cost. It's actually one of the most significant costs, apparently, in growing pure silicon. Um, and it's also a very significant cost if you think about, in a sieve boot context, these would be, this would be amateurs attempting to do this. They'd be making mistakes. Well, if you make a mistake, guess what? <laughs> Gotta get a new crucible. So the CZ method, uh, from what I've seen, is not applicable to a sieve boot. There's no way it could ever be used in a sieve boot. Uh, it doesn't scale down. You, it destroys your crucible each time, so you can't try again. Um, because it's very expensive for each attempt. Um, the SC method has its weaknesses, but it, it goes the opposite direction. Um, basically, you, you start with a pure silicon rod. It's not a single crystal, but it's a, it's a pure silicon rod. You put the single crystal on the bottom, you do some special process to heat it up and melt it to the rod, and then you slowly lower it and melt the rod above it, and the rod turns into pure silicon. And this does not destroy a crucible at the end. Uh, it has several benefits. Now, do I think a sieve boot is going to be able to replicate either of these methods in any time in the near future? Um, not many of them. Uh, maybe there could be a single university or a couple universities who invest heavily into creating these kind of infrastructures uh, to be able to grow this for a sieve boot project. And that would be extremely valuable. Um, 
I don't 100% know whether it's economical, whether it's possible for that to happen. But that, if, if it were to happen, that's probably how it would happen. Um, it would be great if there could be more. Um, but I, I don't have a lot of faith in silicon manufacturing ever reaching the public domain and ever reaching um, a group of like amateur volunteers, even very dedicated ones. Maybe, but unlikely. Possible in the university setting. So a, a Sibboot being an educational tool could appeal to uh, universities and maybe through that mechanism, um, silicon growing could, could be done. Um, oh, also, even after you do purify it, it has to be cut into wafers in a very precise fashion using diamond saws because it's silicon, very, very hard material. Um, it has to be perfectly along the lattice and then you have to polish it perfectly. That's, there's a whole process of that. And then you then have to take this wafer and produce transistors on it. And that's, I'm gonna do that in the next section. Um, that's a whole nother process. Now, yeah, so I had some notes here about the silicon process. Uh, let me just scan through here. Yeah. One item, regardless of whether these processes can be understood and replicated, they're extremely complex, labor-intensive, and dangerous. It'd be very difficult for anything smaller than a university or a large company to build. That's what I said. Um, now, it, it's important to note we probably don't need large wafers and we, because we're doing smaller scale processing. Uh, modern industry is, is making wafers that are really large. It's very difficult to produce large wafers. Um, back in the day, they were like this big. Um, they were, you know, they, they were like four inches across. Now they're like a foot across or something, foot in diameter. Um, you don't need the large wafers. Uh, you don't probably need the purity levels. Like I said, 9,000 transistors in the Z80. Um, maybe we can produce a chip like that that's smaller. Um, but even still, silicon is going to be very difficult. So this, this gives us two options. Reduce the cost and complexity of silicon or find a different process. Um, we don't actually need to produce silicon. We just want to produce computer chips. Can we do that? Um, yes, maybe. Uh, you can. In fact, they've done it. Uh, albeit for very low processor speed and mostly in research settings, but it does exist. There's something called nanomagnetic logic. Now this is, this is like a pie in the sky um, sci-fi concept. Um, They've only produced some transistors. They've not produced a full chip as far as I could tell, uh, but basically it uses tiny nano-sized magnets that can spin according to a magnetic clock. And if you arrange them the right way, they can act as a logic gate. Um, they're next to each other. And so they, um, their orientation, their magnetic orientation affects later computations. So it creates, it creates a, a circuit this is extremely beneficial because it's apparently very low power and if the computer turns off, it can reboot in the exact state it was in. There's many benefits to it, but it's not really well demonstrated currently. And it's, you know, it's nanoscale stuff, so it's probably pretty difficult to implement, but it's worth paying attention to. The one that I'm most excited about for Civboot is the nanotube CPUs. So 
I think, theoretically, growing nanotubes is actually not all that difficult compared to manufacturing pure silicon. Um, there's methods, various methods, I haven't researched it extensively, but uh, growing nanotubes is possible, um, could be possible, outside of a university setting even, but certainly within a university setting. Um, and uh, a nanotube CPU is demonstrated to work at low speeds, a full CPU, running a RISC-V processor at one megahertz. Um, and uh, DARPA even uh, did a press release that the process does not require pure silicon backing, requires only low temperature processes. And for me, it indicates that it might even scale down. You can do a smaller scale process. Um, they've actually demonstrated that it can work using existing semiconductor fabrication processes. So that's really good news. So again, the time scale that the Sivboot's operating under is, is very unlikely we're gonna produce a full Sivboot in less than 30 years. I mean, maybe with like a Z80 processor, you know, and some university support, we could use the silicon manufacturing or maybe a nanotube manufacturing to have a very low speed processor with very limited RAM and memory that could produce the circuit, uh, the software could, could have the circuit um, design software uh, to design new circuits, because that's one of the requirements of Civboot, is that every layer is understood, and you could redesign the Civboot using only the tools in the Civboot. Um, now, you're not going to get graphics processing <laughs> with that low of processing speed, but um, people were designing circuits back in the day before graphics, uh, extensive graphics existed, so it's certainly possible. Um, but this space is definitely the, I think it's important to note, this space is definitely the hardest for a Sibu to meet, but it is physically possible. I do believe that given enough time, and I'm talking like 20, 30 years, two or three decades, this technology can be simplified and the cost can be reduced sufficiently that a Sibu could be built. And that, I think, gives us the greatest hope for simplifying our technology stack so it can be understood. And so people who want to learn about it can build every step and societies that want to uh, become technologically capable can have a place to start from. Both a place for their citizens to learn and a place uh, to build from. Because even though Civboot is great proprietary software proprietary hardware improvements that geniuses make is also great um both can coexist together and in fact i think a sib boot supports the latter um more than anything which currently exists um it's also worth mentioning that open hardware is starting to really take off a little more than it has yeah, until very recently. Um, and that will be another topic that I discuss in uh, future episodes. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast.